welcome to the preaching ministry of the Agape Baptist Church in George, South Africa. Good morning. Open your Bibles to Genesis uh, this morning, Genesis chapter 38. We are continuing working through uh, the book of Genesis, and um, <clears throat> we've come to chapter 38 this this morning. Um, somebody uh, said the other day, uh, as they were anticipating the sermon today in the in the passage that we're dealing with that uh, I've been drawing the short straws in our, <laughs> in our selection of, our selection of passages because this is a is not not one that you would uh, kind of pick out if you're just picking and choosing a um, uh, passage to preach from chapter 38 it's um <clears throat> when you're reading along and you come to chapter 38 you it, it seems a bit like it's out of place. Uh, you know, you're, you're reading about Joseph, and it seems like it's kind of a interruption in in the story uh, that we're we're told about him, the account of all that God's doing in his life. It's uh, in, in some ways, it's, it's the kind of things you don't even want to hear about. It's like uh, you know when you're at the checkout line in the grocery store and you see the, the tabloid uh, magazines there, you know, just kind of confront you like, I don't even, I don't even want to know about, uh, you know, all these things. But uh, the Lord has a, has a purpose. I can imagine the children of Israel uh, later, when Moses uh, records this, I can imagine them thinking, Moses, can we just leave out some of this detail? You know, especially if you're from the uh, the family of Judah, uh, you know you don't you don't really want to know about all of uh, all of this. But God is the author, and He's given it. And one of the things that it does for us, it gives us a, a behind-the-scenes look at at what's happening back in Canaan, while Joseph is a slave down there in Egypt for those 22 years we see a, a, a glimpse of what is going on. Uh, we don't really, we're not really told a lot of, the, we're not really told anything about what's happening with the other brothers, uh, the older, the other brothers, the older brothers of, um, of Jacob, of Joseph. But uh, considering what's happened up until now, we can't imagine that it's going much better for them than it is for Judah. Uh, and it would appear that Jacob's family is in real danger uh, as they're there in the land of Canaan. It, it, it appears that they're in the danger of becoming absorbed into the pagan Canaanite culture. And we see that with Judah for sure. Uh, and I believe it's one of the reasons that God has planned to uh, send the uh, Israelites down to Egypt uh, for 400 years as slaves uh, so that there they can be separated, isolated really, from the culture of Canaan for sure and from 
the Egyptians as well, as you remember, even, even before they went into slavery, before Joseph died, they had their own area that they were kind of isolated to because they were shepherds and took care of uh, animals in which the Egyptians thought that was kind of beneath beneath them as kind of a, like a second class uh, citizens. And so they were set apart. And God used that to create a, a distinct people uh, and as they grew and multiplied as a nation. Well, this, this issue of being set apart for God is still a problem for us, the church, today. Um, we are to be in the world, but not become like the world. And that's a, that's a challenge, isn't it? Because the reality is, as we're in the world, the world has an impact upon us. And God has called us to be salt and light in the world. And uh, that has to begin at, with us, has to begin in our homes. But it is not easy. And we're going to look at that a little bit this morning. Let's go ahead and read chapter 38. And we'll work, we'll work through uh, the chapter here. It's, it's kind of a long chapter, but so hang in there with me as we read through it. Chapter 38. Uh, this is from Genesis. And it happened at that time that... I'm going to bring a text up for you here. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shula. And he took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son and called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. And yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chesib when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of God, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up an offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so whenever he went in to his brother's wife, he wasted the semen on the ground so as not to give an, an offspring to his brother. And, when, and what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Now verse 11, Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. And the course, in the course of time, the wife of Judah, uh, Shula's daughter, died. And when Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his uh, sheep shears. And uh, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off 
her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil and wrapped herself up and sat at the entrance of Enim, which is on the road to Timnah, for she saw that Shelah was grown up and she had and she had not been given to him in marriage. And when Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. And he turned into her at the roadside and said, Come, uh, let me come into you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, What will you give me that you may come into me? And he answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, I, if I give, uh, sorry, if you give me a pledge until you send it. And he said, what pledge shall I give you? And she replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. And when, and then she arose and went away, taken off her veil and putting on the garments of her widowhood. And when Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was in Enim and at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I, I sent the young goat, and you did not find her. And about three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant in immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burnt. And uh, she and she was, sorry, verse 25, as she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah, and he did not know her again. And when the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, uh, one put out a hand, and the midwife took, a, took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. Well, <clears throat> as we uh, look to <clears throat> the word this morning, I want us to think about two, uh, two things. Really, one, Judah's action and how that relates to us. And then secondly, God's actions. Uh, first of all, uh, I want to think about Judah's actions under this one heading, and it really will serve as a warning to us. And that is friendship with the world 
sets us in opposition to God. And really, verse 1 sets the stage for this drama that unfolds. It says that Judas he sets out on his own and he makes a Canaanite friend, Hira. And with this new friend who is... We're not really told about the character of this friend, but we can assume that he's he, he, he is a Canaanite, and therefore we can assume that he's involved with all the pagan idolatry of the other, other Canaanites in the, in the region that God warns them against and would later uh, warn them about as they're entering back into this land. But he's coming under these influences of his friends and the fact that he's, he's left his, uh, uh, the, his home area where his other brothers are, he's isolated himself, and he's made a home really in this, um, in this area where his new friend is at. And while he's there, he meets this uh, Canaanite woman and uh, takes her to wife. We're not given her name, just, just her father's name. And so we don't know much about her, but um, we do see uh, that the sons that are born um, are wicked, at least the two God kills because of their, their actions. And we don't have all of that detail either, but we see a family here that is, um, is, is living, living away from God, not knowing, we don't even know if the sons even knew anything about God. But we see this their pagan influences in their life. And let me just stop there to to warn young people to um, choose your friends wisely. Uh, because the friends that you have will have an impact on you. And it's really better to not have close friends than to have friends who do not love the Lord. Uh, because they're going to pull you up or drag you down uh, one way or the other. Uh, and as 1 Corinthians 15.33, there Paul warns these Corinthians because they're being influenced by people that's come in uh, to the assembly of believers. And he says, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. And that's certainly true in our lives. It's not just for young people that have to be careful. We all have to be careful, don't we? We have to be careful about our close associations and about our affections in this world. James warns about this. He, in James chapter 4 and verse 4, he says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. That word friendship there is from the, the root word phileo. And it speaks of, of, a, of love in a, um, a friend kind of way. And it's, it's like it's, it's, it's an emotion. It's, um, it's having affection for. And, uh, and so James is warning that if you have an affection for the world, a love for the world, if you make your, the world a friend, 
When it says world, it's talking about this world system that we live in that is in opposition to God. He says when you do that, then you, then you can't be saying at the same time you love the Lord and that you want the Lord as your friend. Uh, and, and in fact, you've made, made yourself an enemy of God. And so he, he warns in that way. Now, don't misunderstand. We are to be friendly to everyone. Don't think that, that James is saying, you know, keep keep yourself, you know, arms length from, away from people, and and don't uh, and don't have unbelieving friends. No, we are to we are to have friends, and we're to to influence the lost around us. Uh, we see Christ is is an example of someone who who uh, ate with uh, had meals with with unbelievers and those that were. You know, were regarded as, uh, uh, you know, the like scum because of their their activities or or who they were. But we're to influence them with the gospel. That that has to be our purpose. And if we lose sight of God's purpose for us as His children, then we are in danger of becoming influenced by them instead of us influencing the unsafe for for God and for Christ and for the truth. When we lose sight of that mission, that goal that we have, then we're in danger of becoming influenced by them for evil. In 1 Corinthians 10, there God reminds the Corinthians uh, that the record of what happened to Israel in the wilderness was recorded for a warning to us. And he says that we're to not follow in the same kind of idolatry that they've that they followed. Let me just read a, a few verses from 1 Corinthians 10, beginning in verse 6. He's talking about the children of Israel there in the wilderness. He said, Now these things took place as an examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And that's dealing with the golden calf incident, you remember. He says, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happened to them as examples, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the ends of the ages come. Therefore, this is the, this is the, the reason he's, he's saying all of this. Therefore, let, us, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And so the, the warning comes to us that we're not to think that we're strong enough that we're, um, you know, we're holy enough uh, that we can go and mix it up in the world and not be impacted by the sins of the world. And so we, we are to be careful. In verse 6 and 7 in our text back in Genesis, it says, And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, 
and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of God. Or same word is translated evil. We don't know what, what his deeds were, but, uh, but the Lord put him to death. And so Judah tells his second son, Onan, to take his brother's wife so that he could raise up for, uh, for him or raise up a son in the name of his brother. And this, this practice, what he's, what he's describing here, is a leveret marriage, what the, was referred to. And it, it was a custom of that time. And later, Moses records it into the law. And it was, it was given to, uh, uh, for one, to protect this, the widow in that day, uh, not having... Not, not having the same type of, of opportunities that, uh, that widows have today and care and so forth. And so they were, <clears throat> as the customary, uh, protection and care. And it had also to do with inheritance. And so the, um, uh, the, the brother was to marry the, the wife of the, of the dead brother. And so that she could have a son that would bear his name and receive his inheritance. And so that's what this, this custom is all about. Um, and, <clears throat> but we see that Onan, he pretended to fulfill his responsibility towards Tamar, but he's selfish. And he wants this firstborn blessing to come to him. And so when he goes into Tamar, he in, intentionally spills his semen on the ground. And the text says that as a result, the Lord kills him also. And so you've got Judah. He doesn't know what's going on. You know, he's, he's a bit oblivious to uh, his sons. And he thinks that it's Tamar's fault that they're dying. And so he uh, tells Tamar to return to her father's house and to remain a widow there, basically, until uh, his third son grows up and gets older. But we know that he doesn't have any intentions of giving his uh, third son to her, uh, and, um, and so he's deceived her. He's, he's, he's lying to her, and he's mistreating her. And not being faithful to what he's uh, what's it what is he, he's committed himself to, and so we see uh, Judah in his friendship with the world has really impacted him to the point that he's thinking and acting like the pagans that he's living among, and we can see this clearly in the fact that Tamar knows his character well enough that she can deceive him by pretending to be a Canaanite cult prostitute. And we see that he's not only known as someone who's involved in sexual immorality, but he's also known as someone who's involved in the practice of the Canaanite idolatry. That's what these cult prostitutes were. It was a uh, a means of worship, a means of receiving something from a God, 
like a fertility uh, blessing on the land, so forth. And so th this is something that, um, that Judah is now uh, has involved into the point that she can plot and plan or, because she knows what to expect from him. How did Judah get in such a place? Well, we could say it's one step at a time, right? It's one step of disobedience away from God after another. Before long, you're in a place where you, you, you can hardly say how you got there. And so there's the danger for us not to think that we can just dabble here with this sin, that we can take this step and not think that it's going to impact us. Because the reality is we are weak. And we need God's grace and God's strength. We need the fellowship of the believers. We need the encouragement of one another, and the accountability of one another. And, and God <clears throat> protects us in that way. God helps us, enables us in that way. Well, when Tamar realizes that Judah hasn't been honest and he's, he didn't intend to, um, to give his son Sheila to, to her as a husband, she seizes upon this opportunity that's uh, happening with the, the, the sheep shearing and their bit of revelry and, and time of uh, feasting and so forth. And uh, so she sets herself in a, in a position so that she hopes that her, if her plan works, she can become the mother of Judah's child. And her plan works just as she had imagined. And uh, when he offers the payment of, uh, of this goat, uh, she asks for this pledge of, uh, this, of his signet, his cord, and his staff. And those were all three means of identification. And uh, it would be like, Today, giving, giving someone your credit card, your driver's license, and your ID card, you know, or your ID book. Uh, you know, Judas, he's not thinking straight. He's just being led by the flesh. It's like, like Proverbs 7 describes the man who goes into, uh, in, into a, the prostitute like an ox being led to slaughter. He's, he's allowing his flesh to lead him, and he's like, the, he's like a dumb ox going to destruction or to slaughter. Well, when Judah later sends his Dulamite friend back to receive his personal items, he takes the, takes the goat, and he expects to receive his personal items back. Well, she's gone, and, and he can't find her. And so it would be an embarrassment to keep asking about this, uh, this prostitute. And so they just decide to let it go, to keep from being embarrassed. Well, I want, to, I want to stop right there and switch our thoughts to God. What's God doing at this time? And I, and I want you to see that, um, that God is jealous for His people. Um, God is is acting, and it's, this should be an encouragement to us as well as we think about the fact that God is jealous for us. Now, when you think about 
God being jealous, he's not jealous in the sense that we're often jealous. <laughs> you know, like they, they have something and I, and I want it. God is jealous in the sense that he is a, is a holy God and we are his people. Uh, I want to I draw your attention to Exodus 20. You'll know this is the part of the Ten Commandments. The second commandment related to not having idols or, or images that are made in the uh, in, in image of God. And uh, verse 5 and 6 is part of this command. It says, You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. And so we belong to God exclusively. <clears throat> And that's what he means by being jealous. God wants our total devotion to him because we belong to him. And if you remember, think about that passage in James 4 where it says that friendship with the world is basically idolatry. And that word there in um, where he says you adulterous people in James 4, uh, that's that's in the the feminine uh, there. It, it's literally you adulteresses, because he's he's describing a wife who's not been faithful to their husband. And if you think about us as the church, who are we? We are the bride, right? We're the bride of Christ. And you see that that imagery in the Old Testament, also in the New Testament. When Israel was unfaithful to God, they are described as an unfaithful wife, an unfaithful woman who, who is described here and warned. And James, I believe, is intentionally using that imagery because he wants us to see that we are to be totally devoted unto God. We are to not be loving the world and setting our affections and our hopes upon the things of this world. But that our <clears throat> devotion and our love would be fully given unto Him. And that's why Paul could write in Colossians 3, 5, he, he admonishes, Put to death therefore what is earthly in you, sexual immorality and impurity, passion, evil desires and covetousness, which is idolatry. And how is it idolatry? It's idolatry because we're looking elsewhere. We're looking to our satisfy our own passions, our own desires, uh, somewhere other than in God. And therefore, it is idolatry. And so you don't have to, as the second commandment warns about making images, you don't have to have a little idol sitting on your shelf to be involved in idolatry. Anytime we, we go lusting and desiring after other things to satisfy us rather than in God. That is idolatry. When we set our, our affection, our love on something else. It doesn't mean we can't enjoy the things in the world. We, we, God created the world for us to, to, to enjoy, but we have to guard, guard our hearts, don't we? And make sure that we are uh, loving Him and walking with Him and enjoying Him. Well, God is dealing with Judah 
or the way that God is dealing with Judah shows us that he is jealous for his covenant people and his covenant promise that he'd made with Abraham. Uh, God is jealous, first of all, in judgment and in discipline. God judges sinners and he disciplines his children. And we see that in this passage in the killing of Ur and Onan. The scriptures describe them as being wicked or evil, but they certainly weren't the only ones in that culture. They, they weren't the only ones in that family that were evil. They, they were acting, I believe, just like the others around them. So why does God kill them and not the others? For that matter, why, why didn't God kill Judah or Tamar? And when we read accounts like this, we wonder, as we've already seen with the other sons as well, we wonder, God, why didn't you just kill them all and just start over? Or you could, you could start with Joseph. Joseph had a heart to, to serve God and love God. And it, it draws our minds back again to Israel and the golden calf incident later in Exodus chapter 32. You remember Moses goes up on the mountain there and God's given him this, these commandments that God had given. He's going to put them on a tablet. He writes them on these stone tablets. And uh, Moses is up there for a while. And the people are getting restless and they're beginning to say, well, you know, what happened to him? Maybe God's killed him. You know, and they, and they create this golden calf and they begin acting like pagans, worshiping in lewd ways and immorality. And uh, the Lord, while Moses is, is there with him, it says, and, and the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Therefore, now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. So what's God doing? I believe He's giving Moses an opportunity here to intercede on their behalf. God knew what He was going to do, but He, he wants Moses to feel and sense the anger that he has, the wrath that he has, because God is a holy God. And Moses does intercede on their behalf, and Moses reminds God of His promise to these people. And God, God says, you know, Take, kill me instead of them. And Moses is acting like the Lord Jesus Christ as He intercedes on our behalf and He did give His life for us. And uh, Moses, as he prays he, he, and, and he intercedes, and he, he tells God, has God, don't be angry with them. But then when he comes down and he sees what they're doing, he's burning hot with anger. And he throws down the tablets and breaks them. And so in many ways, he's mirroring God and his anger against their sin. But then we see Moses, again, he's interceding and he, and he, he uh, God says, 
that he cannot go with them. And if he if he goes one uh, one second or one moment with them, he's going to destroy them. That, that's God in His holiness. But Moses intercedes and and asks God to to um, uh, to forgive them. And then we see in Exodus thirty three and verse nineteen. And this is uh, where uh, God answers him in his request to know the Lord, to see Him in His glory. And it says, uh, And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim, my, proclaim before you my name, the Lord. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And so God... God hears Moses' prayer and He does allow him to see um, at least his fading glory as God passes by. And He says, I'm going to kill those. I'm going to show mercy uh, to, to some and I'm going to show judgment to others and I'm going to show grace to some and and I'm going to to bring my my uh, uh, judgment upon others is basically what he's saying. And we do see that throughout the Old Testament record, this gracious God, all all deserved his judgment and his condemnation, but God was merciful and gracious to some. And we see also. He, that God is jealous for His people in His mercy and grace. Uh, if you think about um, the, our own reality, before we can turn to God in repentance and faith, we must see our sin. We must come to, to a place where we, we acknowledge and recognize that we are lost without hope. We may not be as... Um, sinful as some others or as sinful as we could be but we must acknowledge our lost condition and our and our hopelessness in our sin and this is also a grace from god that he works in our hearts and in our minds and brings us to a place where we can see our need see a person never comes to a genuine faith in Christ until they see their lost condition, until they acknowledge that they have no hope without Christ, and they see Christ and what He has done for them on the cross, and they turn from themselves unto Him, trusting Him fully. See, this is God's grace towards us, and we see God's grace towards Judah. And He allows him to be found out in his sin. This is, this is God's grace towards him. Genesis 38 again, verse 24 says, About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah says, Bring her out and let her be burnt. Wow, can you see how blind Judah is to his own sin? He could see her sin, and he's ready to bring judgment, even the death penalty upon her, because she's been unfaithful. 
So Judah's hypocritical here in his condemnation of her because he's guilty of the same sin, exactly the same sin, but this, uh, worthy of judgment just as, as much as she was. And more so because uh, it was because of his sin that she was tempted to do what she did. And so we also have this same danger, the same problem, the same sight problem, you could say. We can see, easily see someone else's faults, someone else's sins, some, what someone else needs to make right. But we are so blinded many times to our own sin. We can excuse ourselves and say, well, if this hadn't happened, then I wouldn't have done that. Or if you didn't do that, I wouldn't do this. And, and we can excuse our sins. We need to come humbly before God. And sometimes God brings things into our lives that cause us to stop and to see our need and turn to Him. Verse 25 and verse 26, we see that as Tamar is being brought out to be executed, she sends this, these personal items of Judah, the signet, the cord, and the staff. And ironically, uh, says to Judah, can, can you identify whose they are? Because they belong to the, the father of my child. You know, I would, it's one of those situations where you'd like to be there to see his expression on his face. I imagine you could have knocked him over with a feather because he immediately knew they were his and, they, and he immediately come under the conviction of his own sin and the realization that he was guilty. And he publicly admits and says, she is more righteous than I. And he's, he's acknowledging his own sin and the first, even before that, because that he hadn't been honest and he had deceived her and not given his son to her. They were both guilty. We do see Judah's guilt even greater because of the deception, his neglect of Tamar by his actions. And so Judah's guilt is exposed. He's made this humble confession, this humility in public. But it's really the turning point, I believe, in Judah's life. And we do, we do see a changed Judah as we, as we look at him several years later in chapter 44 when he, when he goes down and stands before um, Joseph. And uh, that whole scene that plays out there later, we'll get to that. But he basically is willing to take the place of the youngest son, Benjamin. Benjamin is going to be taken as a slave. And uh, they all know this is going to kill their father because of the way that he mourned for, um, for, jo uh, for uh, Joseph. And um, uh, Judah says, I'll take his place. I'll be, I'll be the slave instead. Just let him go. Let him go back to his father. And so we see, a, we see a different Judah. We see a different man by that time. And so God is gracious, isn't He? He's merciful. And He's zealous for His people. He's zealous for His covenant, for His promise that He's made. He's going to carry it forward. 
Not because these people were worthy. Not because there's anything in them that was good. But because God is God. And God has determined to be gracious unto them. Just as He has been to us. In James 4 again, you know the, the passage there where we were warned about friendship with the world. The next verse, verse 5 says, Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the Scripture says He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He's made to dwell in us? Now that's a difficult phrase there, but most of the, the modern commentators and in the and have taken that to to refer to just as you see it in the ESV there he yearns jealously over the spirit he's made to dwell within us in other words he's jealous for us he goes on to say but he gives more grace because we fail don't we we fail we come short of this fidelity to our Lord and Savior. We're not always faithful. Many times our heart gets turned away and we, and, and we sin and we, and we come short of the, the total commitment to our Lord. And he says, but He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so God gives grace and mercy to Judah and Tamar, and He gives grace and mercy to us as well if we'll humble ourselves. God was, God has a way of humbling the proud. You can think of Judah. And He has a way of raising up the lowly. You can think of Tamar. And He did raise her up. We see that um, uh, at the end of the chapter there that she has twins. And and it's somewhat like the experience of Jacob and Esau at their birth. Uh, these twins that were born, and Zerah, the, the one son, his hand comes out first in birth, and the midwife ties this scarlet thread or, or ribbon-like thing on, on, his, on his wrist to indicate this is the firstborn. The expectation is that he's going to be born first, and when... Twins are born, they don't want to be, be mixed up, which is the firstborn. Well, we, we read there that uh, he pulls his hand back in and Perez, the, the other son, comes out first. And, and the midwife is surprised by that and says, wow, what a breach you have made you know, for yourself. And he uh, pushes through and he's born first. And Perez means breach, indicating... Uh, his action and Zerah is scarlet, indicating the thread that was tied on his hand. Again, showing God's providence according to his plan. We see God's grace towards them because Perez, the, the firstborn of Judah, is in the, the line of the Messiah. He, he's in the kingly line through David. And when Matthew gives an account of the genealogy of, of Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 1, he lists five women, or four plus Mary. And, and it's incredible here, the ones that, that God 
list in the genealogy. Normally women were not in these genealogies, as you know. It's usually the men as heads of households, and the sons that came after them, and, and the sons after them, and so forth. But he lists in this genealogy Tamar, of all people. <laughs> if we had been writing a genealogy, we wouldn't have thought about Tamar. I mean, we might have, we might have thought about um, Sarah, you know, or, or some other women in the history of this genealogy, this line leading up to Christ. But we wouldn't have thought of Tamar. He lists Tamar, a Canaanite, and a background, not only a Canaanite, but who had uh, feigned prostitution and um, who, uh, who, who deceived her father-in-law to have a child by her father-in-law. You know? And then Rahab is also in this list, who, who was uh, also a Canaanite. <clears throat> and Ruth, who's a Moabite, and then he says, he doesn't even give her name. He says, the wife of Uriah. And we know that story as well, don't we? It's as if he pulled out names of people that would have been the last that you could imagine. And said, God in his mercy and his grace, put them in the genealogy of our Lord and Savior. And God wants us to see His mercy and His grace. He, wants, he wanted the Jews to, to also see that it's not their heritage that they should be depending upon because God loves the Gentiles also. And He's called unto Himself the Gentiles also. And He is gracious and He is merciful. Well, in conclusion this morning and I want us to think about how is that possible? How is that? How is it that a holy God, a God that says, if I'm, if I, if I go with these people in the wilderness for a moment, I'm going to kill them all. How is how is a God that cannot look upon sin? In, in other words, He can't have it in His presence. How is that God able to be gracious and be merciful to us? As sinners, that is a that's an incredible truth that I don't think we grasp fully. How could God ever forgive sin? And the reality is, the way that He's able to be gracious is because of the Lord Jesus Christ. He came as the sinless Son of God, and He died as the substitute for sinners. God, in His holy wrath against sin, was satisfied in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ as He died in our place. The Bible says He is our propitiation. And that word propitiation in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 2 means that he is God is satisfied with the offer of Christ. He satisfies His righteous and holy judgment upon sin. And because of Christ, for all of us that put our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, turn from our dependence upon ourselves and, and the hope that we can be good enough, 
we reject all of that and we turn from that to the Lord Jesus Christ, putting our faith and trust in Him, God can forgive us. God can forgive us because the judgment of sin was put upon Christ. And we can be forgiven and God can be holy and just. What a great truth that is for us this morning as we think about how it is that Judah could be forgiven. How, how it is that Judah could have mercy and, and that he could be in the line of Christ. His brothers were passed over because of their sins. And yet Judah will become the line that the Messiah would come through. Lord Jesus is described as the lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah. It's because of Christ. And we can rejoice in Him today. You can rejoice in Him if you know Him as your Savior, if you've come to Him in acceptance. But if you do not know Him this morning, run to Him. Run to Christ. Don't run to your good deeds or hope that you'll be good enough in the end or that if you can, can you know, do enough things to satisfy God. You cannot. You cannot. Only Christ can satisfy this holy God. And so run to Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank You. Thank You, Lord, for Your Word this morning. Thank You for the challenge that come to us as we think about the danger in the world around us. The danger of allowing our affections to turn to the things of the world and our own sinful desires of the flesh. And Lord, I pray we'd be warned this morning and that we would see ourselves as we are the bride of Christ and that we would keep ourselves unspotted from the world and that we would uh, cling to You and set our affections upon You always. Lord, I pray that You'd also help us to, to rejoice in the mercy and grace that we've received because of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank You for that. In Jesus' name, Amen.